You are entering the Freedom Hut. The economy is roaring and the midterms are looming. So what are the Democrats going to do to steal Trump's thunder? Oh, that's right. Claim credit for this economic boom. We'll talk about how they're playing that game and how we can fight back. Plus, the latest on the Khashoggi assassination and this caravan of migrants moving to the U.S. border. Why are the Democrats playing so dirty in the public conversation about this? That and more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. The choice in November could not be more clear. Democrats produce mobs. Republicans produce jobs. Across the board, this economy is really humming. Uh, As I've said many times, uh, American workers, blue collars, white collars, entrepreneurs are just crushing it, absolutely crushing it. We're the hottest economy in the world. And you know what? You want to compare this economy today with the economy of two or three years ago, are you better off today? I believe you are overwhelmingly better off today. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Overwhelmingly better off today than you were a few years ago. That's what everybody needs to know as we are in the final stretch here before the midterm election. Because it's true. Because the left has no real answer to this other than to obfuscate, to rewrite history, to make stuff up to distract, to change the subject, or just to lie. Trump has not just beaten their very, very low and, in fact, nearly uh, insanely low expectations that they set for this president, that effectively he was going to destroy the economy. He hasn't just, It's not that he hasn't destroyed the economy. He is crushing it on the upside. He's doing a phenomenal job. And the Republicans were right. The tax cuts have stimulated growth. Businesses are investing. They are hiring. There is optimism. The markets are are reflecting this positivity. American productivity and dynamism are on the move, folks. This is good. This is good. And, And then you have what the left says about all of this. Um, you know, we get into this whole game now of, oh, well, it's the, you know, thank you, Obama economy. That's what they want to say. This does not comport. This does not line up with the record and what history really tells us. It's just not true. Here's the kind of stuff that Obama was saying during the campaign when Trump was running. Here's the kind of stuff that Obama used to say about the economy. Play clip one. Some of those jobs of the past are just not going to come back. And when somebody says like the person you just mentioned, who I'm not going to advertise for, that he's going to bring all these jobs back. Well, how exactly are you going to do that? What are you going to do? There's, the, there's no answer to it. He just says, well, I'm going to, I'm going to negotiate a better deal. Well, how, what, how exactly are you going to negotiate that? What magic wand do you have? And usually the answer is he doesn't have an answer. That was Obama just a couple years ago talking about Trump when Trump was running, saying he doesn't have a magic wand. He can't bring all these jobs back. He can't do it. 
And now the story is, oh, well, he has done it, so Obama's going to take credit for this. This is this is preposterous. This is this should be laughable, but it's all they've got on the left, and that's why Obama's out there on the campaign trail, giving speeches, trying to trying to just tip the the balance of the House to the to the Democrats, and he's the guy who's running around there saying, "Yeah, that's right. The good economy is because of me." Now, before I even let Obama make his case for himself here, let's just understand this: if the economy were what they said it would be under Trump, which was you know, in, in a free fall, recession, bad things happening. Do any of you believe for one second that the story would be, well, it's not Trump's fault, it's Obama's economy? Of course not. This is, this is ridiculous. So given we can establish that, we also know that we should not have to take it seriously that now they're saying, oh, that's right, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the Obama economy that we are all enjoying right now. Please. Please, that is ridiculous. Um, but here's Obama making that case. Play clip two. So by the time I left office, wages were rising, uninsurance rate was falling, poverty was falling, and that's what I handed off to the next guy. So, so when you hear all this talk about economic miracles right now, remember who started it. Remember who started it. Come on. I mean, this uh, Obama at the at the economic level is the guy who's you know who, who's uh, whose wife comes over to open up the ketchup bottle because he can't get it, and then he goes, you know, I loosened it for you. It's like eh, it doesn't really that doesn't really cut it. Eh, it's not really how this goes. And I, I just think that that's so indicative of they got nothing right now. They've got, to, they've got to try to, they've got to act like Obama is still the president, still the one making the decisions because the decisions that have been made for two years are good and they're helpful and people have jobs and they have money and they have more money in their pocket and they have less, less of a crushing tax burden and the corporate tax rates now in line with the rest of the advanced world. We always hear about how great the rest of the industrialized world is on healthcare and these other things, but on their corporate tax rate, whoa, whoa, no, we need a really high one. We need a higher corporate tax rate than, you know, Denmark does. I mean, that, that, that's the kind of stuff that the Democrats end up having to say. I, I guess they feel like they really have no choice. But Larry Kudlow, who's uh, one of the one of the more stellar Trump administration officials out there, Kudlow is saying that uh, Obama's recovery from the recession was the worst one since the Great Depression, the worst one in basically a hundred years. They, were ne- they never had 3% GDP growth under Obama's time in office. Never, not once in eight years. That's coming out of a terrible recession. A stock market got hit, you know, 30, 40, 30%, I think it was, at the, at the real downturn. The Dow got crushed, all that stuff. Kudlow is just the one who's out there making the case. Play clip three. Under his uh, stewardship, the so-called recovery was, I don't know, 2% average per year, uh, which is really the worst uh, since the, I believe, since the Depression. And already, uh, we have beaten our critics, including Obama's staff people. We're running an economy that's 3 to 4% economic growth. And the whole change here, look, President Trump has cut tax rates on small businesses and corporations and individuals. He wants to do some more. That's a huge change from President Obama. President Trump has 
you know, roll back onerous regulations. And what you're seeing now is a tremendous increase in uh, men and women who own and operate their own small businesses. Uh, the president has stopped the war against success, stopped the war against energy, stopped the war against fossil fuels. He is rewarding success. All good things, all the kinds of decisions at the presidential level that would have a positive impact on the economy, and that is exactly what we are seeing. They can't make the counterargument because the facts are the facts. So what argument do they make? Oh, they create an alternate universe where Obama's the one who's really responsible for the decisions that Trump is making or for, for the, the benefits that Trump has brought about to the economy. You know, it's, it's Obama who's doing all this great stuff. They are living in a fantasy land. They, 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 they are not connected to reality here. They're just not. And it, it, I wish the American people would, would be able to get the, the real scoop on this one and vote based on it, because then you'd have a, a Democrat, you'd have a red wave. All right? You'd have MAGA taking, taking the country by storm instead of any kind of a, a transfer of power to the blue and, uh, you know, and by the way, it could get even better. There's, there's, a, there's even a, a new tax cut that uh, that will be going. There's a new tax cut that could be happening. So, you know, I think that's also very, very important to think about. There's better things coming in the future, folks. We'll, we'll talk more about, you know, whose economy is this really? Who, who's really the one that is uh, responsible for all this in, in a moment? We'll also get into the caravan, what the latest is on that on immigration, uh, what we can expect for the midterms, the Khashoggi case update. It was a murder. It was a gangland-style hit by the Saudis. What are we going to do about it? we got that and much more coming up. The threat to our democracy does not come from one person in the White House or Republicans in Congress or big-money lobbyists. The biggest threat to our democracy is indifference. The biggest threat to our democracy is cynicism that says we're just going to stay home because... My voice doesn't matter. The last election, it was probably the same number of people that could fit into a, a football stadium, swayed the entire election. Don't tell me your vote doesn't matter. If you don't like what's going on right now, and you shouldn't, don't complain. Don't get anxious. Don't throw up your hands. Don't boo. Vote. Why is not voting a threat to democracy? Somebody want to ask Obama that? How is that a threat to democracy? Because plenty of people are going to vote. They think about this. This is something that, this is a classic Obamaism. People say it. It sounds smart. It sounds kind of right. You know, oh, okay, yeah, democracy vote. Yeah, good. But when you actually pull it apart, you go, hold on a second. That's nonsense. What the heck is he talking about? That, that, that's just bizarre. A threat to our democracy is, is some people not voting. There's no real concern that no one's going to vote. There are a lot of people that are very motivated to vote. But apathy is the threat to our democracy. I just, I, I think that, I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just not nearly as smart as people want to believe it is. Or as profound or insightful. But really, that's the big separation when it comes to everything that Obama says. There are people who take the position that everything that President Obama says is a stroke of brilliance. It's amazing. It's incredible. And then there are others, like me, who say, I don't find that to be 
true. <laughs> I do not think that that is an accurate way to look at all Obama pronouncements. Uh, in fact, I think that his his uh, eloquence when he's off script and his insight is very overrated. Maybe even overrated O'Rourke level. We'll get to that in the uh, later on in the show. Um, but the notion of being threat to democracy, I just find, and they, look, Obama is the, the secret weapon that the left has, they think, to sway this election in at least the House for the Democrats. And they don't really have a better option, to be fair, so I understand. Uh, but also this, this notion that you shouldn't like what's going on right now. I hear this a lot from Democrats. I, I hear this from the left. And then I always want to say, what exactly should they not like? Should we not like? And then I get it. Oh, you know, racism and Trump and Russia and all this stuff that's just, it's just rhetoric. It's just noise. None of that really affects anyone in this country. They might think it does because they watch too much Rachel Maddow, but none of that actually matters to anyone's life in this country in a meaningful way. And that's where the Democrat messaging here is so hollow. It's just all envy and rage dressed up with fancier language about the threat to our democracy and undermining our democracy. Put simply, what's so bad in this country? What's so problematic right now? What, what do we look at and say to ourselves, oh my gosh, if this continues, we're in terrible shape. I really can't think of it. I, I don't know what it is. Economy's good, not starting any big wars, not involved in any big wars. Yeah, we got to we got to work on our border. We got to work on healthcare, but those are issues that I think are trending in the right direction now, um, and there are going to be challenges forever. We're never going to fix those things. They're, they're ongoing. It's like fixing crime. There'll always be crime. It's just how well do you have it managed? Do you have it under control? Right. Having lived in New York City when crime was under control, and having lived in New York City when crime was way out of control, I understand that that the goal is just to, to have the best situation that realistically you can. It's not to have a perfect situation. But that's a very big difference. And the difference between what we saw with Obama on a whole host of issues, most notably the economy, but many issues, and what we see now with Trump is, is very clear and should be very clear to people. But look, a lot of the data will show you that people vote because of how that vote makes them feel. They vote for someone or for a party because of what they think that vote means about them more than what they think that party or that person will necessarily even do for them. Right? So you know, someone votes Democrat because they think it makes them cool. They vote Democrat because they think it makes them uh, you know, in touch and, and considerate and hoping to help the less poor and less fortunate, all, or the less fortunate and the poor and all that. All that kind of stuff. Yeah, 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 you know, all that stuff. That I'm, as a fat cat Republican, please, I wish I were. I wish I was a fat cat Republican. There is no buck force one in my future, let me tell you. Although there should be, but it's not going to happen. Um, and then Obama also talked about this, this make-believe, this make-believe um, observation that Republicans ruin stuff that Democrats fix. Uh, yeah, Here, here's what he said. Play clip six. The world's going through big changes, economic changes, demographic changes, technological changes. It's challenged who we are and, and what we stand for and how we adapt to these new circumstances. And the fact is, is that 
Some of these challenges are big and they're tough and they're hard and we haven't addressed all those challenges. And so what happens is people get scared and when they get scared, you see backlash against progress. When I walked into office 10 years ago, we were in the middle of the worst economic crisis of our lifetimes. That was the last time that the other party was in charge of things. I, I do think it's interesting. I, I just hope people kind of notice that every time there's a pattern where they kind of, they run things into the ground and we have to come back and clean things up and then. Yeah, that's the pattern, says the guy who was the only president since they've measured GDP to never have a single year, a full year of 3% GDP growth. They're just rewriting history now. What did Obama do to say to pull us out of the uh, of the Great Recession? What did he do? The answer is he spent a trillion dollars, and nobody can even remember what he spent a trillion dollars on. The answer is our recovery was slower and more painful and crappier than it should have been because of Obama. There was no great there was no great plan he executed. The banks were already saved. The Bush administration bailed out the banks. Obama just showed up spent a lot of money, and then made a lot of bad decisions. But, you know, the, the it's not like Obama was the one guy holding the economy together or coming up with these great ideas. Quite the opposite. Everything that he did was making it worse and harder. Higher taxes, more regulation, more government intervention. That wasn't good. That wasn't useful. Businesses didn't feel optimistic. They didn't want to hire. People didn't want to build. Home builders didn't want to get going. I mean, th- all across the board, but they're, they are rewriting history. That's what's going on. Obama is there right now to, in as eloquent and compelling a fashion as he can, rewrite the history of the economy for the last 10 years so that people forget what it was like then and what it is like now. Because if they vote based on what it's like now and what has been done in the last two years versus the eight before it, Democrats forget about holding anything. Democrats are going to have to try to stave off a supermajority. But unfortunately, they have the mainstream media in their pocket and they have a lot of propaganda power in the Democrat apparatus. So we shall see how many people pay attention to the truth. Um, and now let's talk about the caravan situation coming up. We are a generous and welcoming people here in the United States, but those who enter the country illegally and those who employ them disrespect the rule of law, uh, and they are showing disregard for those who are following the law. Uh, We simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked, and circumventing the line of people who are waiting patiently, diligently, and lawfully uh, to become immigrants in this country. Wow. How many of you knew that then-President Obama was so anti-immigrant, was so heartless? What, what about the women and children, Obama? What, what, what about them? Aren't they allowed to just come into the country? Oh, my gosh. Oh, you mean that Democrats, for a, for a long, long time, including through the Obama years when he was president, were willing to pretend that they don't really approve of illegal immigration because they know the American people don't approve of illegal immigration. That was Obama. You could have, I mean, here's the quote, quote, we simply cannot allow people to pour into the U.S. undetected, undocumented, unchecked, 
and circumnavigating the line of people who are waiting patiently, diligently, lawfully to become immigrants in this country. Trump could say that tomorrow and they would scream that he's a racist. In fact, that sounds exactly what Trump would say. That sounds exactly like what he would say. They would yell about how Trump was so racist. Oh, he's so horrible. How could he say such a thing? They have, the left has no principles. They're, they're completely dishonest about immigration. It changes depending on whatever they need at any moment in time. We used to think that we could at least have this core agreement on. We, should, we have laws. The laws should be respected, and there should be, a, there should be legal immigration. We should, we should stop illegal immigration. And people who will tell me, oh, but Obama was deporting all these people, Buck. He was deporting all these people. Two things to remember about that. One, President Obama specifically had his federal agencies change the definition of deportation to include people turned away at the border. So now if you were caught at the border and told to go back and you were, you know, you were arrested and released back on the other side, you were now considered to be deported. That's one. So that was a way of driving up the numbers. And two, Obama deporting people was necessary to create the impression among the American people that he was about the rule of law, that he was favorable to a secure border, so that then he could get through a massive amnesty for, oh, they say 11 million, it's 20 million. It was a brilliant plan. You know, do, do a little bit of enforcement, let them call you the, the deporter-in-chief, and then build up the currency politically and with the media's help to make it seem like you're serious about immigration reform when really all you're serious about is amnesty. Because with amnesty comes the death of the Republican Party, full stop. So whatever they have to do to get to that point, they're, of course, willing to do. Right? Whatever you can do, whatever you must do to get to amnesty, you should do as a Democrat because it means that you effectively eliminate your competition. Eliminate. Gone. Forever. Right? Victory. Game over. We cannot allow people to pour into the U.S. undetected and undocumented and unchecked. And we can't allow people to get around those who have waited patiently in line. That was Obama a few years back. Where are those Democrats now? Where is Obama now, other than telling fantasies uh, that he has about his, his economic record to Democrats in this last-ditch effort to try and at least flip the House at least flip the House, Democrats now. They know the Senate's gone. No chance. Senate's out of their, out of their grasp now. Uh, but Obama's doing this whole, this whole storyline about the economy, and you know, he's going to take credit for it, which is just, it's just nonsense I've been saying. And it doesn't, it doesn't comport with the facts. But also on immigration, there's such a fundamental dishonesty about, this, about how Democrats would approach, should approach this caravan, what they expect Republicans to do, and all of all the arguments I hear from them are just emotional appeals. There's really not a policy argument for them to make because they can't they won't tell you who can't stay, who has to go back other than criminals. They certainly won't address the issue of, of what an unsecured border is doing to this country and, and how it's part of ruining communities with uh, the terrible scourge of fentanyl and these other uh, opioids and these these synthetic opioids that are are killing tens of thousands of Americans. But wh why why is it that Obama could say that? No one called him racist. No one said that he was afraid of 
brown people from south of our border. That's what they say about Trump. They say he's afraid of immigration. As I like to point out, Trump, who is married to an immigrant, is afraid of immigrants, according to the media. This is this is what they tell us. This is the the standard rep, uh, repetition you hear night in and night out on the media. That's right. Trump does just just trying to capitalize on the divides among the American people, trying to really solidify racial tribalism in this country. Democrats just push and push. They love this issue. They want to divide us from each other. They want to stoke envy and animosity between different races, between different socioeconomic and cultural groups within the American family. This is what they are. This is what they excel at, unfortunately. This is the the center of their politics. Uh, that's why you see them all all just oh it's all about these women and children taking these photos of them at the board, uh, in this caravan. Meanwhile, they don't call the Mexicans racist for trying to keep Guatemalans from crossing. Remember, they were at the Mexico-Guatemalan border. They got all these Hondurans who want to get through. Mexicans are not saying, yeah, that's right, come into our country. If it were really just about fleeing tyranny and violence, why aren't all these people who are Spanish speakers who share a very, very similar culture with Mexico, Guatemala, and Honduras? I know it's, this might be controversial, but Honduras is more similar to Mexico than Honduras is to the United States. I, th- I think that's fair to say. And if it were just about you know not, not uh, being subject to gang violence in Honduras, why not resettle in Mexico? Oh, that's right, because America is wealthier and better opportunity and right. That's what every immigrant around the world that wants to come to America thinks. If it were just about safety, the whole point would be get to Mexico, not get... Now, people say Mexico is just as dangerous. That's not true. There are parts of Mexico, there are whole states in Mexico that are as safe as very safe parts of the United States. But lies, folks, lies, lies, lies. We'll, we'll get into more of what the truth is around immigration, the caravan, and how it will affect the midterms in just a moment. The State Department will continue to seek all relevant facts, consult with Congress, and work with other nations, and work to hold accountable those responsible for the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. The administration is also taking appropriate actions now given the information currently available to the United States. We have identified at least some of the individuals responsible, including those in the intelligence services, the royal court, the foreign ministry, and other Saudi ministries who we suspect to have been involved in Mr. Khashoggi's death. We are taking appropriate actions, which include revoking visas, entering visa lookouts, and other measures. We are also working with the Treasury Department to review the applicability of global Magnitsky sanctions to those individuals. These penalties will not be the last word on this matter from the United States. We will continue to explore additional measures to hold those responsible uh, accountable. We're making very clear that the United States does not tolerate this kind of ruthless action to silence Mr. Khashoggi, a journalist, through violence. Secretary of State Pompeo laying it down. Unacceptable what the Saudis did to Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. And there are the early, early stages of these consequences, revoking visas. You know, this is going to ramp up a bit. The possible of, possibility of global Magnitsky sanctions as well. So individuals who are believed to be tied to this could be sanctioned. The big question is, will they sanction Mohammed bin Salman? Will they, will they freeze his assets? 
Well, you know, that that's when things will get really interesting because he's effectively a foreign head of state in a country that we are at least overtly allied with. Uh, and and they would have a very, you know, once you start going after these guys in the pocketbook, they tend to have very big issues with it. Uh, just as, as an update on the, on the Khashoggi matter uh, generally, I got to tell you, people have been asking me about this. They say, Buck, how could the Saudis have been so stupid? I mean, for, put aside the ruthlessness, the brutality. I mean, this is a mafia-style hit. This is straight out of The Sopranos, right? This is, you know, beat someone to death, come up into pieces, dispose of the body. And this is what you expect from an organized crime family that is ruthless and violent. And what we shouldn't be all that surprised at, at recognizing now is that the Saudis are effectively an organized crime family. They just have royal titles and a lot of money, but they operate like an organized crime family. And I just would note that it's very likely that the Saudis have been doing this kind of thing for a long time, meaning there are a whole lot of body parts buried out in deserts that we never get to hear about from people who were maybe critical of the regime or just posed a problem for the regime in Saudi, and we have no idea, we never will. And even the people who know in Saudi won't say anything because they don't want to be buried in the desert somewhere. But why would the Saudis do this in such a clumsy way? Are their services really that incompetent, their intelligence services, the people that were involved in this hit. And I don't have a great answer. I mentioned to you that sometimes in closed societies like Saudi Arabia, where the services can operate with any fear of, you know, the Saudi ACLU getting involved or something, right? They can do whatever they want effectively if it's sanctioned by the regime. They can tend to be a bit sloppy. But the Turks also have their own intelligence and police services that can do more or less what they want as long as they have the backing of the regime, in this case, the the Erdogan uh, government. And the Saudis should have known that, meaning that the chances of them getting away with this were so slim unless they were just dumb and really believed somehow this wouldn't be a problem. There must have been a miscalculation here that either we're not taking into account or that we're not yet aware of. The latest reporting says that the body of Khashoggi, and I was told this very early on, but I didn't think it was sourced well enough. I might have mentioned this on radio. I can't remember now. That the body of Khashoggi may in fact have been buried in the garden of the head of the consulate, uh, consul general, I think, in, in Istanbul. Buried in his garden. That's what they decided to do with this guy. Which just goes to show you how, how just brutal and rough this whole thing was. And the the reports that the the forensics expert, the Saudi forensic expert who had a bone saw who said to put on, according to Turkish leaks, put on music because it makes the process easier. But this is grim. This is just brutal. What the heck were the Saudis thinking? Uh, the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia is certainly not going to feel the same for a very long time. And... I'm not sure where the administration is going to stop this. I, I think there may be some sanctions against individuals. Uh, there will be some revocation of visas. Maybe they'll expel the Saudi ambassador. But it's going to be hard for people to hang out with Mohammed bin Salman anytime soon and act like everything's just fine. Um, that's that's where this Khashoggi thing is. For, for the media, for the left, this is really just, a, it, like I've said, it's an opportunity to bash Trump. And that's what they are fundamentally most concerned with. This is 
an opportunity to bash Trump because whatever he does will not be enough. Secretary of State also spoke about the uh, the caravan, which I wanted to spend a moment. We'll talk more about that in the next hour. This, this caravan, which I know Democrats that are in tight House races and and Senate races really don't want this getting all the attention it's getting because it's a it's a problem for the Democrats. Yeah, the base is all about oh we just want illegals and bring people in and the more the merrier. But the majority of the American people do want our rule of law to be respected. They do believe in sovereignty. And Pompeo spoke about the caravan today. Here's what he had to say at Play 24. The migrant caravan is violating Mexico's sovereignty, laws, and immigration procedures. President Trump will not stand for this to happen to the United States. To those who say this is a hard-hearted stance, let's not forget that the United States is a historically generous nation when it comes to immigration where one million people per year are granted permanent legal status here in the United States. Over 33 million people to total are currently here who have immigrated to this country legally. To those who want to come here, come here legally. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? And yet it almost sounds revolutionary coming from our own Secretary of State. Come here legally. Stop trying to find ways to get around our system, actually use and respect our system. And these people that keep saying that it's nativist and it's racist and all this to oppose masses of masses of people just walking, literally just walking into our country because they want to, don't seem to take into account that we have had a, an enormous change in, de- in the recent decades in the demographics of this country in favor of more and more and more immigrants all the time from everywhere, from all over the world. We take in, we, we, we have a million people a year told that they can stay in America forever, legally, in this country, including a large number of, of citizens. And as I've always said, welcome to those who are citizens who come here legally. Uh, but that's, it's just crazy for people to then say, you know what? We just, uh, we just really think that America has this nativist policy and, and the caravan is, is yet another time where we're seeing the truth of it all. That's bonkers. We're bringing in more people than anybody else. What we're doing, nobody else is doing. Nobody else is taking this approach. And every other country is allowed to have borders. Why can't we have borders? Why doesn't sovereignty matter here? Why is it that, that anyone should be able to come here and, and then access our benefits? Remember, the tax dollars that you pay, my friends, are what gives these benefits, and yes, the protection of our military, the protection of our court system. That's all paid for by us. That is time out of your life, because that is what time is money, right? They, you pay them money based on the time that you have accumulated. You're, you're, you're giving them hours of your life so that we have a judicial system, so we have rule of law, so we have a military that protects us, as well as the infrastructure and and society and culture and all of that that have produced so much wealth and so much prosperity, if you can just come here and just be a part of that because whatever, then we are just a, a fatted cow to be milked by anybody who wants to come by. Worse than just milk. You know, fatted cow to be slaughtered eventually because this country is going to go down the tubes. It's not the way it should be. But we've got more on the status of this uh, caravan and what to make of it all coming up in just a moment. The Democrats have launched an assault on the sovereignty of our country. 
the security of our nation and the safety of every single American. The crisis on our border right now, as we speak, is the sole result of Democrat laws and activists, Democrat judges that prevent us from returning illegal aliens from Central America and all over the world. It's called catch and release. So that's on the caravan, and Trump gets it. He understands that the Democrats are dishonest in this whole endeavor. They're not being asked by the mainstream media, all the candidates out there who are Democrats, are not being asked, what should we do about this? Now, look, it it is over a 1,000 miles walking distance from where the caravan currently is to the U.S.-Mexico border. I, I have it, in my mind at least, that this group will all of a sudden have access that there'll be buses and maybe some trains and and what what is a you know a month long journey might end up being a uh, a you know a week long journey or so or two week long journey with some trains and some buses i i'm just putting it out there that that could happen and it would not surprise me all that much i've seen a lot of footage of people traveling at least part of the way on trucks and given remember we're talking about transporting a few thousand people. So you don't need that many trucks and that much uh, assistance for that to happen. It would be difficult logistically, but certainly not impossible. But here's what would happen if they if they got to the border. And this is what people on the left do not want to admit, do not want to talk about. Uh, if this caravan makes it all the way, or if some part of it makes it all the way, and put aside that there'll be more caravans and that this will incentivize further efforts like this and and it gets murky because people say oh well they're not illegal aliens because they're going to claim asylum if they present themselves at a port of entry and say i wish to claim asylum that is technically true temporarily speaking they are not illegal aliens they are released in the interior of the united states awaiting a court date to determine their asylum status here's what the democrats don't want to tell you if that happens The backlog, I believe right now, is about 400,000 cases for asylum. And that means that you're looking at a four to five year lag period before a lot of these individuals would even have their claims heard. It's, I think, a minimum of a two year wait. And it probably is because the more people you put in, the more jammed up the system gets. This is all meant to overwhelm the system. I mean, this is straight out of the Alinsky playbook. It's find out where the other side is operating in good faith and has a system to try to do the right thing and then just try to ram through as much as you can through that loophole. That's what they're doing with asylum claims, okay? The entire five or six million people, person population of Honduras cannot and should not qualify for asylum. But if these people in this caravan qualify for asylum, then anybody from Honduras qualifies for asylum. And if anybody from Honduras qualifies for asylum, you have to wonder, why doesn't anybody in Nicaragua qualify for asylum? And then Mexico, and so on and so forth. This is how thousands becomes tens of thousands becomes millions. We have had a surge, I would note, a surge in apprehensions at the border. The initial Trump effect, because people thought, okay, if I get caught, I'm going to have to go back. I'm not going to get to stay. That has faded. I'm just calling it like it is. That has faded. And it means now that there is a, a sense among those who want to come to America without going through the legal immigration process that now is a good time. Uh, now, there's all this 
focus on the caravan right now and and the uh, the demographics of it, who's in it. You know, they're the left will focus on the women and children that are in it. But as we know, there are a lot of military age males. There's a lot of young men that are part of this caravan. Uh, the left will say that they're just seeking a better life and jobs. But people on the right will say, well, hold on a second. There's also going to be people with, with gang ties in this tide who realize that getting into America is going to be uh, much more lucrative for their illicit practices. And there's also going to be people that you would assume, once they get to the border, are going to try to use this mass that will strain any police resources, use that moment to try to to try to bring drugs and other things over the border. I mean, that, that's just, we don't know, but that's a reasonable expectation. Uh, but ultimately, for the left, this is, I think, a losing issue. Um, a losing issue. Because the point is not how many uh, Middle Easterners or non-Hondurans there are. The point is that we don't know that we have no verification mechanism in place, that we have no means of proving who is and who is not a part of this whole thing. Uh, And by the time they get to the border, and there are so many thousands of them, it's going to be too late for us to have any realistic process in place. That's assuming they make it to the border. Maybe this will dissipate, although I doubt it. I doubt it. Uh, But here is what uh, CNN was putting on for analysis on this last night. Get ready for it. Hit the deck. It's CNN. Play 16. Just because someone is Middle Eastern, of course, there are no Middle Eastern people there. But that doesn't mean that they're bad. It doesn't mean that they're terrorists. You know, we're in this world now where Trump can say Middle Eastern and everybody then immediately somehow begins to think of terrorists. Uh, most of the terrorists that we, uh, incidents that we've had in the United States are not being committed by Middle Eastern people or by Muslims. They're being committed by right-wing extremists in our own country. So I just, there's just this lie on top of lie on top of lie wrapped up in lies and then with some lies smeared on top of it. And I appreciate you trying to fact check it, but I just don't. There want- are, I mean, there are clearly, you know, people from other parts of the world who would try to come through the southern border. There is no evidence of terrorists, people with terrorist affiliation, uh, according, uh, according to the people who know. Okay, a couple of things here. First of all, many of you know, I lose my mind. I get very, very agitated with this continued lie on the left that most terrorism in America is right wing. Okay, I worked in the Counterterrorism Center of the CIA. I worked in the NYPD's Intelligence Division. Most terrorism comes, when you're talking about terrorism of lethal concern and a strategic threat to the United States, it is overwhelmingly Islamic radicals. Overwhelmingly, 95% plus. When you look at mass casualty attacks in the United States involving a political motive of any kind, it is overwhelmingly jihadists. Radical Muslims trying to kill as many people in this country as possible. And when you look at where we devote our counterterrorism resources, and that means including how many disrupted mass casualty plots there have been, how many people we are how many people we have to put out there with the FBI and the CIA and everything, and law enforcement all across the board, and the amount of time and energy and resources they spend trying to and then in fact stopping terrorist plots. It's all jihadism, basically. Anything that's not jihadism is aberrant. It's a shock. It's a surprise. So how they come up with this is just by changing the definition of one, what constitutes terrorism, all right? And then, and then two, hoping that we move past things like, oh, you know, 9-11. Well, let's not count that in the statistics. And don't count disrupted plots and the resources that we spend year in and year out 
on specifically Islamic radicalism. But back to this point about how there are no Middle Easterners, the reality here is that we don't know. And that in itself is the problem, meaning that you can't just have people show up at the board. None of these people have any documentation, not that I'm aware of at least. I mean, maybe some of them brought it with them, but you know, they're not showing up being able to prove it. They're just going to show up and tell stories. And they know what stories there's silence. I have, you know, there's gang stuff going on in, in my city. If that is now a, an asylum claim, any person from a whole slew of Latin American countries that are just beset with violence and corruption and terrible stuff happening all the time, they will all be in a position to just claim asylum in this country and stay. And, you know, one of the other things, I just got to note this, people say, oh, very few of those from the last caravan, which I would know, was organized by an international NGO. So don't, don't, get, don't allow them to just play this game of, oh, but, you know, people saying it's organized, that's such a lie. Well, the last caravan, which had a few hundred people, was organized by an international NGO. So there was a, an organizer that was not just a grassroots, hey, let's go do this. That's, that's one point of this. And the other is they'll say very few of those people were granted asylum. What they'll leave out of that is very few of those people have actually gone in front of an asylum judge, an immigration judge, to find out if they can stay or not. And very few of them will for a long time because of the backlog. And everyone knows this. This is a backdoor way to get in the country and everyone assumes that they will stay because we will not enforce the law. That's what this comes down to. Do we have sovereignty? Do we have rule of law? The left says no because it benefits their power structure and because ideologically people just want to feel like they're helping the poor and the downtrodden and they don't mind doing it at the expense of all other Americans and our rule of law. In the midst of all this whining coming from the left, you have to wonder, why would anyone act like such a baby? You know what? Maybe they just need a little bit more caffeine, a little bit more delicious tasting coffee. I don't know. Maybe the patriots and veterans of Black Rifle Coffee could save this country from all the leftist tantrums if we could just get those screaming progressives to try some of our delicious brew, my friends. I start every day with a cup of Black Black Rifle Coffee. I don't even put anything in it. You know why? Because it's delicious. This is premium, roast-to-order, small-batch coffee. Those of you who are really into what you're drinking every day when it comes to coffee are going to love it. Go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. You'll get 15% off your order. Nothing cures a bad attitude like starting your day with the most American patriotic coffee ever. Again, blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. That'll get you 15% off your order, folks. All of you should check it out. They reported yesterday that Donald Trump is very unpopular with nations. He's one of the most unpopular presidents in the history of polling. And I said, no, I said, of course I'm unpopular with foreign nations because we're not letting them rip us off anymore, folks. When we protect with our military, the greatest in the world, and now it's a lot better than it's ever been because of what we're doing, we have to be reimbursed for that protection. We have to be reimbursed. We're protecting the wealthiest nations in the world, and we're subsidizing them. And then they beat us on trade. They take advantage of us. So those days are over. You're seeing it happening fast. Happening fast. 
Let's take a slightly contrarian position here for a moment. Trump is somewhat reveling in the fact that foreign governments don't, and, and foreigners in general, don't tend to like Trump all that much based on these polls of favorability they do, and, and, and that is really no surprise. Why should we be upset about that? What, is, what can they point to in terms of a, a policy change? How is it negative for Americans that our president is not viewed as some, oh gosh, gee, so swell guy by other nations? Uh, shouldn't there be some inherent sense? Like I said, be a little contrarian here for a moment. And I'm not saying you walk over and slap around the British prime minister to make a point, right? We, we do have friends and allies, but taking this contrarian point of view, shouldn't people feel like uh, the, the president of the United States maybe is is more on Team America than he is on Team Global, Team Rest of the World? And if, in fact, they feel that way about him, shouldn't that mean that they're not necessarily all that in love with everything that he does? You know, just you know, when you begin to unpack these things, when you peel away the layers, you think, well, hold on a second. Do I really want a president who's, and by the way, which countries are we supposed to, are we supposed to be, uh, remember, it's not the American people, it's the president himself. Which countries are we supposed to be so worried about that don't like our president? You know, what are the countries that we say, oh no, good gosh, what will we do? Sure, Trump is, is vulgar, and so these European governments tend not to like him. He's going toe-to-toe with China over trade and tariffs, so the Chinese have, have issues with him. He is hard on immigration, so Mexicans and Central Americans tend not to like him. I think that's probably an understatement, but all right, so what? If we don't have a president who is willing to ruffle some feathers, so to speak, in these other countries, you know, Mexico is an immigration partner for us, yes, but is also a very problematic one. I mean, we've got drugs flooding into this country that's killing tens of thousands of people. It's all coming from Mexico. All right, Mexico's causing a lot of problems for us. So shouldn't we have a president who's willing to say, yeah, the Mexican government, the Mexican state is, is an issue for us. Same thing with China. Same thing with any European countries that have high tariffs in place and aren't pulling their weight in NATO. You know, th- this, this is a shock to the global system, I know, but where is he so wrong? And why has it always been the default position that the American president has to just take this position of, well, I want everyone to be happy. I want, I want pretty much everyone, with a few exceptions of some very bad actors, to think that I'm just a great swell guy. So yeah, they don't, they don't like Trump. Don't we want a president, given what China's been doing to us on trade and intellectual property theft, don't we want a president that kind of ticks off the Chinese a little bit? Just a little bit. Not, I mean, I'm not saying be crazy about it, but you begin to think more about it, and it, and it, it makes sense, doesn't it? And you don't see this as what the, what the elite media in this country does, which is this horrible destabilizing force. You know, there are areas of friction between nations. It's just natural. We are in a competition for, uh, for resources. We're in a competition for security. Now, it doesn't mean there's no cooperation as well. Of course there is. But it's not all, you know, daisies and, and, and unicorns. There's some, there's some other stuff that we should be honest about. And I just, this goes back to Trump. Trump approaches things with common sense. This is a recurrent, I talk to my friends about this all the time, the people that I know who are conservatives in my life. will say, look, Trump just sees things the way that a normal person who hasn't been propagandized to from the left and hasn't 
involve themselves psychologically in a certain outcome would approach it. Chinese are doing bad stuff? Okay, well, let's tell the Chinese to knock it off and let's do something about it. Not, not the usual, you know, hocus-pocus, dance-around, left-wing garbage. Speaking of what Trump does when it comes to people that step out of line, uh, there is this Russian nuclear treaty that it looks like we, we may be uh, exiting now. Trump has said that this is a very real uh, possibility, and we even have the National Security Advisor, Mr. Bolton, talking about this. Play clip 20, please. Have the Russians been quite understanding for your, your reasoning and you explain it to them? Well, I think their uh, preference, as they've stated, is that we not withdraw. But I think we've given them reasons why we're going to do it. And I think they understand our reasons quite clearly, some of which I think they fully appreciate from their own strategic perspective. I think the president uh, could not have been clearer, not just on Saturday, but uh, yesterday, as to what his decision is. So he, here's here's what we got, all right? The the uh, treaty we're talking about with Russia, and remember, Trump is supposed to be a Russian stooge, he's supposed to do Russia's bidding, blah, blah, all that crap. Here's what we've got. John Bolton and the U.S. national security apparatus, uh, have told the Trump administration, have said that they're going to leave the INF, which is the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. And the Russians are all, uh, Russians are all upset about it because this treaty goes all the way back to 1987, when President Ronald Reagan signed it with Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev. And Russia, according to Trump, the Trump administration, has violated this treaty because there's supposed to be no uh, possessing or production of or testing uh, ground-launched nuclear cruise missiles with a range of 500 to, or 300 rather, they were doing kilometers, 300 to 3,400 miles. So we are being told by our government uh, that, well, at least back in 2017, you can also look at that, White House national security officials said Russia deployed a cruise missile in violation of the treaty. And the Obama administration accused the Russians of violating the pact by developing and testing a prohibited cruise missile, according to USA Today. So the Obama administration said that the Russians were violating it. Guess what? Just like we saw with the red line in Syria, Trump comes along and says, you know what, we're not going to put up with this. We're going to pull out of this treaty because you guys are playing games with it. And the Russians are all, oh gosh, you know, don't do that. And, and our media is, oh no, what are they doing? Meanwhile, I think, you know, Trump, no matter what he does, they hate it. They say he's too cozy with dictators. They say he's too cozy with Putin. And then he is going to pull out of a treaty the Russians really don't want him to. And we're being told he's crazy. He's a madman. What is he doing? It's almost like Trump can't win no matter what he does, folks. Our fundamental responsibility is to take care of the least of these, especially when the least of these are working families who only want a little bit of access to health care. And I am sick and tired of hearing about the free market being the solution to this problem. Because I've never seen the free market write a prescription in rural Georgia. I mean, never seen the free market show up to give someone metformin so they can have a little bit of control of their diabetes before it turns into an amputation of their foot. I've never seen the free market say, I'm going to replace that stent in your heart next door and not make you go 200 miles to get it done. The problem with the free market is the free market needs to make a profit. And there is no profit in doing the right thing. 
That is the very much heralded on the left uh, Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams, uh, who is very possibly going to be the first female and first African-American governor of Georgia. Uh, it is a close, a close race right now. But I think that was really telling that that ex- that uh, that clip we just played for you, where she has an obvious hostility to the free market, and I think has a very a very uh, let's just say superficial understanding of what the conservative argument is for the free market. Uh, let's just start with this: we have nothing even close to a free market in healthcare. We have massive government regulation, government intrusion, redistribution of wealth. The government is already spending a large percentage of overall health care dollars year in and year out in this country because of Medicare and Medicaid. We, we do not have a free market, nothing even close to a free market. So, so let's start from that. Let's understand where we are. And then let's look at what the problem with health care is. The problem with health care, as, uh, as the left sees it, is that not everybody just has it. The problem with healthcare as the right sees it is that unless you increase the incentives for there to be more caregivers and better care and more efficient care, you can't actually promise unlimited stuff to everyone and not either one, invoke massive rationing, or two, bankrupt the country, or three, both. So we deal in the reality-based world of you can say everybody has health care, and you can even mandate that everybody has health care, but that doesn't mean that they're going to get taken care of when they are sick. Democrats keep pushing this notion. They say, well, look at how it is in these other countries. Look at how it is. In... And we push back and say, well, hold on. We don't want the system that they have in the UK. We have a better health care system in this country. And we also, by the way, have a much better and more prosperous economy than they do in the UK. Uh, we also have a much better and larger and more dynamic economy than the Canadians do. You look at these other countries where they also have private health insurance that people with the money will get for what they really need and what's really important to them. You know, you want to have heart surgery based on the National Health Service in the UK or you want to have a heart, sur- heart surgery at one of the best hospitals in the United States? You know the answer to that. So there, there's no simple, straightforward approach to this. But let's just all be very clear that beating up on the free market and saying the free market never wrote a prescription, that's just rhetoric. That's, that's a whole lot of nothing. That doesn't tell us how things are going to get any better. And this is the part of the healthcare discussion the left does not want to talk to you about at all, which is that a huge portion of our healthcare spending right now is pushed by lifestyle diseases, It's pushed in large part by uh, choices people are making. And if you don't have any cost sharing at all in that, if you went to a single payer system, then there'll be no incentive financially to try and make better health choices. Oh, I know people say, oh, Buck, what about people who have this terrible disease or that terrible disease? I know that happens. But do you know what most healthcare costs comes down to? Heart disease, diabetes, old age. That's where things, now old age obviously is not a choice, but that's where the spending is. That's where the money is going. We're not, we're not having trouble in our healthcare system because of people with you know, congenital birth defects or because they're born with some 
some lifelong chronic condition that that that's actually not where the healthcare dollars are going. So coming up with modified means of giving care as well, not forcing people to go to like their HMO so they can go to a certain doctor so they can then get a prescription for, you know, an ear infection that they knew they had the day they woke up and they could just walk to the pharmacy and get it. I mean, there's a lot of ways that care could be more efficiently delivered. And also healthcare is in fact improving over time in this country. You know, your, your cancer survival rates are going up. Cures for diseases are of course increasing over time, right? The medicines we have are becoming more effective. That is market driven stuff. So to say that the, that the, the free market is, uh, you know, is the enemy here and there's no profit in doing the right thing. Well, the only way that you can make that work in terms of government care is if you start mandating that people have to give care at a certain level for a certain salary, i.e. they become government employees. And guess what, my friends? I worked in the government. You're not going to have the science whiz kid deciding to go get an MD if he's going to be making a federal employee salary in line with what they make at like the commerce department. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. You're also not going to have enough doctors, period. So, you know, there's no, there's no perfect solution here. There's no perfect answer. Just like, you know, we, we don't put the government in charge of all food production. Well, guess what? It used to be that one of the biggest problems that faced humanity was lack of food. Starvation was a very real thing. We, now we think, how could that even have been possible? Well, as recently as the 19th century, there were concerns that overpopulation, you can go back and read uh, Thomas Malthus, overpopulation would go beyond our ability to feed ourselves and huge, huge numbers of people would die from starvation. All right, that, that's an, an old theory. It's been around for a long time, right? The, the Malthusian, uh, Malthusian fallacy. But turns out that science and technology merge together with, yes, the profit motive means now that our biggest problem when it comes to food is we have too much of it and it tastes too good and we have too many calories. That is a function of the free market. Now, we're not yet there with healthcare. Healthcare does, there are many ways that it can and should improve. But without a market incentive, you're just going to slow the whole thing down. There must be a market incentive for the expansion and improvement of care or else it will not happen. And I just think that uh, the people going around and, and promising that, this, that there's going to be healthcare for everyone and it's going to be so great, they're ignoring the very obvious facts of what that would mean. You know, there's, there's also, by the way, a, a suffering that comes from the, uh, the, the, the delays in care. And that never gets factored in this as well. Yes, maybe you'll get that knee surgery. But if you have to wait nine months for it and you have to walk around on a really painful knee the whole time, that's, that's a cost in essence, right? That, that is a quality of life uh, drawback that you have in these developed countries that have a national health service that everyone's always talking about. Um, so, you know, we, we also are such a driver for the global economy that to put massive constraints on our growth and on our ability to have a, you know, ha have dynamic on, a dynamic and entrepreneurial spirit, which is what would happen if you go to single payer. I mean, single payer in California is too expensive. Imagine what it is nationwide. This is dangerous thinking. And also, by the way, folks, it doesn't stop with healthcare. It goes to the rest of the economy as well. This is socialism. They're just not calling it that yet. Radical Democrats want to turn back the clock. Or
ignore the rule of corrupt, power-hungry globalists. You know what a globalist is, right? You know what a globalist is. A globalist is a person that wants the globe to do well, frankly, not caring about our country so much. And you know what? We can't have that. You know, they have a word. It sort of became old-fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. National. Nothing. Use that word. Use that word. A nationalist, President Trump said last night in Houston, Texas. A nationalist. This is something you generally don't hear from American politicians. But then again, we have been told so many times that America first, because of the history of that term, is not something that anybody could say, even though it really does convey a mentality in the current political landscape that many of us subscribe to, which is that we want a government that puts the interests of America and the American people before the interests of non-American people. That doesn't mean we're going to be involved in rapacious colonialism and mercantilism and stealing all the natural resources of the developing world and all this other stuff you always hear from the radical left. No, no. It just means that if we are citizens, and we are of this country, although not all of you listening, but most of you are citizens, but if, if we're going to talk about what should be done, the government that represents us should represent us ahead of the interests of other people. There you go. Very straightforward proposition, very powerful one, very important one. But also, as you no doubt realize, nationalism has become something of the same way that America First has been marred with a negative connotation. Um, but, but Trump doesn't shy away from this. And here's, here's the usual separation. Uh, you have people think of patriotism roughly speaking, as love of one's country. And people will say that nationalism is hatred of those not from one's country. That, that, that tends to be a way that people set this up, right? So if you're a nationalist, there's this, you don't like those outside your nation. And if you're a patriot, you just focus on the love of your nation. But of course, if you think about this realistically, there's going to be gray areas and crossover between these concepts. I mean, if, you're, if you are truly a patriot, you are going to put the interests of your own country ahead of other countries. So there's going to be those, those elements of a nationalist outlook. And if you are a nationalist, one would think it's because you are patriotic and you love your country. So, so you know, these are terms that evolve over time and that the, the usage of them changes. And I think that Trump is single-handedly trying to, the same way that now people say America first and not have, oh, Charles Lindbergh, and how could you say that? And all, you know, now people say, no, no, Tr- Trump's America First is different from that. It has nothing to do with that political party and that political party's history. It's something else. It's the expression, it's the expression of people today that want to see that, uh, that their interests are provided for first by their own government. Uh, with nationalism, there may also be a similar changing of the term and the connotation around it because of Trump. I mean, he, he can do this. He can say things and do things that other people cannot, largely because I think he doesn't care what they say about him. And he knows that the people who want to understand him do, and the people who insist on misunderstanding him will, no matter what. Which then brings me to 
some of the, oh my gosh, did you hear what he said last night? Uh, Don Lemon, CNN's, by the way, is he an anchor or is he a pundit? Does, does CNN have an answer to that question? Of course, he's a pundit, posing as an anchor, but I just think it's funny that they, it's saying so is Cuomo, so is Tapper, so is Cooper, just different levels of how devoted to the Democrat Party they are. But I think it's funny that Lemon is, is a straight-up opinion guy. But they put him on. They don't. They won't designate him as such, though. At least not to my knowledge. He's an anchor doing a news show. But uh, he was very upset. Oh my gosh, so upset about this this moment where Trump said nationalist. Here's CNN doing its thing. Play 18. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist. Okay, I'm a nationalist. Use that word. Wow. I'm a nationalist. Nationalist. Use that word. We're going to talk about that word tonight. It is a favorite of the alt-right and is loaded with nativist and racial undertones. And globalists, well, globalists have been used as a slur of, of sorts, sometimes even against those in the administration, often with anti-Semitic overtones, which has happened to make the president come right out and embrace nationalism openly and claim that mantle. What has happened here? But the president is defining nationalism differently from Don Lemon, obviously. And, and notice how these terms, they make them, or rather, we are told to accept that they are forever and always polluted. And what better term is there than a globalist, for example, which I look, people associated with Alex Jones, who was actually speaking to a pile of poop in Texas. That, there was video of that, yelling at poop in the street. He's, Alex Jones is not well. Uh, but... Alex Jones has been saying globalist for such a long time that people associate it with him, but the truth is that there is a mentality, and globalist is a much more effective term for it than cosmopolitanist, which is what the more academic establishment types will say. Right? They'll say a cosmopolitanist is one who thinks of himself as a citizen of the world and doesn't view himself as having ties of kinship to any one political structure or nation state. That's a cosmopolitanist. But isn't that what a globalist is? A globalist, though, just conjures up a much more effective mental image of the kind of system we're talking about here, right? It's the globe. It's the world. It's thinking of yourself, you know, cosmopolitanist sounds like somebody that drinks too many apple teenies or something. It just doesn't really give you the same, it, it doesn't resonate the same way. But they've said the, ter- the tone, I mean, the, the term rather has a tone that means something else. So you can't use it. Oh, well, we have to surrender it then. A nationalist, you know, we say patriot, for example, and, you know, patriot is a term that is more often associated with the right. In fact, patriot was one of the words, if you remember back to the days of the IRS targeted conservatives, groups with patriot in the name were targeted by Lois Lerner's IRS. Uh, That was going on. And that's because... You know, the, there are certain buzzwords that on the left signal your you know, your political tribe, so to speak, right? They always talk about democracy. They love to talk about democracy all the time on the left. We talk more to talk about, uh, about America and the republic. And we are much quicker to talk about patriotism and the flag than the left is, right? There are these cultural political differences. Uh, but patriotism already has a conservative connotation in many cases. It just does. They, they would argue with that, but it's just the truth. And nationalism is just an expression, or Trump wants to make nationalism an expression of 
what the new patriotism can be, which is this nation, if you really love America, you have to privilege this nation over the interests of other nations. This, to the left, is a concept that is anathema, but Trump embraces it. And, you know, he, he refuses, and this is so important. It's one of the ways that he's able to win, one of the ways he's able to fight so effectively. He refuses to allow the other side to dictate not just the terms of debate, but the terms in the debate, meaning the very words themselves that we're allowed to use to talk about uh, all these issues. So we've got more on this Trump rally last night. It was amazing, including some of the new nicknames he came up with. Oh, yes, there are some good ones. That's up next. The choice in November could not be more clear. Democrats produce mobs. Republicans produce jobs. Yes, indeed. Trump last night doing a doing an incredible job at that rally. I mean, it was really, you know, he was down in Texas. You could just you could see you could feel how much energy, enthusiasm. I mean, it's this level of of excitement from people two years into the Trump presidency is an amazing thing to behold. It really is. You know, this this wasn't some flash in the pan. It wasn't just, oh, Trump is different and there's this novelty to it. People that were there really understand that this is this is shaking up the system. Those who were early Trump adopters, those who realized that that this was the way to finally take the fight to the media to finally start beating the Democratic Party, to stop losing in the most gentlemanly, uh, you know, weak-kneed fashion possible on the right. People who realize that early on, they've been shown to have been correct in their assessments. And many of them are people that listen to this show, and I applaud you for seeing what even a lot of us who are stalwart conservatives were unsure of in the early days. All right, Trump has delivered. He is what he was thought to be by so many of his supporters then. So there's no buyer's remorse. There's, in fact, a doubling down. And that the Senate is essentially gone to the Democrats, and the House is even in play. People are saying it's, you know, 75% going to go Democrat, but it's not going to go big Democrat. And the fact that it's even a discussion just goes to show you that everything that they, the other side, told you about Trump was wrong. In terms of what he would do, his personality and some of his idiosyncrasies, yeah, sure. I mean, that's you, you got to sign on for some of that stuff, too. Although I personally think the tweets are great. I was worried early on about them, and now I've realized the tweets are fantastic because the media can't control it. They can't edit it. They can't set that tone in there. The tweet is what it is, and Trump can reach out to the American people with it anytime he wants. There's nothing they can do about it. But there's another component of this that I that I really had to lock in lock in on last night as I watched the entirety of the Trump uh, the Trump address last night and that is that he really understands what people think of some of these phony baloney politicians that are put out in front of us and we're supposed to show some kind of deference to or speak about with some some level of this uh, kind of quizzling respect for authority and, and for the system no, no, just because you're a senator from such and such doesn't mean that I have to act like you're not a total buffoon. If you're a buffoon, you're a buffoon. This is what Trump finally has set us free from. He doesn't stand around. You know, I, I remember how frustrating it was, quite honestly, 
You know, you look at the way that Romney handled Obama. Go back and watch. Uh, you're not, none of you going to do that, right? Who wants to watch an old presidential debate? The answer is zero. But if you wanted to, if you just wanted to test me out on this, you could go and watch the first presidential debate in 2012 between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama. Mitt Romney wiped the floor with him on substance, on tone, on knowledge, on everything. Just completely. People don't give Mitt, Mitt enough credit for that. He crushed him. And then Candy Crowley stepped in and bailed out Obama and crushed Romney in the second, uh, in the second debate. But that's a, a conversation we can have another time. But Mitt Romney did everything that you could do without just rolling up his sleeves and telling it like it is, right? He did the debate the way you'd expect at the, you know, the Oxford Student Union or one of these places where they have the fancy debates. Not enough. Not enough. Trump, on the other hand, Trump speaks about the other side without the unnecessary, without the unnecessary deference that so many Republicans have forced upon themselves because they don't want to be mean. They don't want to be too tough on the other side, even though the other side, as we see from, and it was such a clarifying moment we saw in the Kavanaugh debacle, they'll do anything. They'll say anything. They're disgusting. They're disgusting. Trump says, you know what? I'm going to call them out. And there were a couple of great moments last night. First off, this Beto O'Rourke phenomenon is pathetic. This guy's not impressive. This guy's not some charismatic national level figure. This is all a media creation. He is a polit- the political equivalent of a pop star. He, the, the whole thing with his name is phony baloney. It's ridiculous. They just have some Obama and Clinton nostalgia, as I've said, wrapped in together with this guy. And look, I'm not somebody who sits here and talks about, you know, oh, you know, this guy, he's not as handsome as they say he is and everything. Because, you know, I, I, I hate it. It's just so annoying when people in media, if you're there to talk about policy or substance, and they're always like, oh, you ugly face. You know, I get that all the time. I'm like, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm not trying to be an underwear model. I'm just trying to talk about politics and policy. But that's the first thing that people go for. That said, I really don't like having to hear all the time about how Beto is so handsome. I mean, the guy's okay, you know. Can, can we can we live in can we live in reality? You know, people say these mean things. They're always talking about ugly Ted Cruz, which is why I think Trump called him uh, called him beautiful last night. Do we do we have? Uh, oh no, we don't have that. Sorry, he called him beautiful Ted Cruz because people always make fun of Ted Cruz's appearance, which is really really nasty and petty. Ted Cruz is a fine looking guy, you know. He's not trying to be an underwear model either. Uh, but Beto O'Rourke is supposed to be some like pinup model. It's just, this is what I mean. Democrats, they can't even be trusted with the most basic reality. They, they, they will contort and distort everything. And Trump finally called him out on this, and, and he really nailed it. He's overrated, and he's a phony. Play clip 11. Ted's opponent in this race is a stone cold phony named Robert Francis O'Rourke. Sometimes. Referred to as Beto. And he pretends to be a moderate, but he's actually a radical, open borders left winger. That's what he is. And I know Texas well. Don't forget, they tried to convince you on election night that Texas is in play. I kept hearing, I'd go to a thing and I'd have, remember the lines I'd have for the speeches? We'd have lines like it is tonight. I hate to tell you, I think the lines are bigger tonight than they were two years ago. You know why? Because I produced, I produced, 
such an important narrative there because it's true that the enthusiasm and the way I started out this segment talking to you about Trump is based on the results, is based on the reality. The enthusiasm is still there for Trump because here we are two years in and he has delivered on promises. He has followed through. He has, if you are a uh, constitutional conservative, he has given you two fantastic Supreme Court picks confirmed to the bench and with, you know, not easy. He had to fight. Trump could have pulled support from Kavanaugh, as we know. He stayed in the fight. He stayed in that bunker with Kavanaugh till the end, as I know you did with me as well. But Trump has has delivered on the economy. He's delivered on judges. He's delivered on regulation. He will deliver, I believe, on immigration and the wall. It's just going to take some time. He will deliver on health care if, in fact, Congress will go along with them. But you know, there, there are limits. He can only push these policies. Congress has to act. You know, and unlike Obama, Trump doesn't plan on just saying, well, Congress isn't giving me what I want, so I'm going to give it to my political party, even though it's shredding the Constitution in the process. Uh, I think that's all very, very important. Uh, now, as to, so Beto O'Rourke, he also called them overrated O'Rourke, because Donald Trump, no better friend, no worse enemy, no shortage of nicknames. Uh, overrated O'Rourke was what he was what he dubbed him, and beautiful, and also Texas Ted, which I think is a better political name for Ted Cruz. But then he talked a little bit about Elizabeth Warren, who's gotten so much attention recently for one of the most astounding political own goals I've ever seen. Um, and and Trump is not mincing words about it. Play clip ten. Elizabeth Warren was exposed as being a total fraud, and I can no longer call her Pocahontas because she has no Indian blood. I can't call her. I can't call her Pocahontas. I've been saying it for a year and a half. I said, I have more Indian blood than she has, and I have none. I have none, but I have more than she has. But I can't use the name Pocahontas anymore. But if you don't mind, I will anyway. Is that okay? He's not playing the game with them. He's not going to say, okay, I'm going to let this go. No, that's right. Poca- you know, Pocahontas, Elizabeth Warren, big fraud. He says, I won't call her Pocahontas anymore because she's, she's not, in fact, a Native American. And he's not going to play along with her fraud. Maybe Pocahontas would be uh, a, more, a more accurate description. But th- this is what you get from so many of these Democrats. You know, they, they complain about Trump. They say, oh, he lies and his personal behavior is so boorish. And, but so many of us recognize that Trump is who he says he is, that Trump presents himself as we all see him to be. You know, he is, as some will call him, I know there's a book out now, right? The blue collar, is he the blue collar president, the blue collar billionaire? You hear these things. But he has a, a common a common touch and understanding. Common sense, he would say. And all these big Democrat phony baloney politicians, uh, they, they keep pretending to care so much about the average everyday folks, but then we find out that it's really just all a game to them. It's a ruse. It's just yet another hustle. Uh, yet another con. Uh, so I, I think that last night was a great, a great showing by the president, and it was a reminder, first of all, that Beto O'Rourke, you heard it here, folks, is going to lose by 10 points or more. Beto O'Rourke going down by double digits. 
in Texas. After all the, oh, Beto, he's amazing. Beto, play guitar for me and write me a song. Nonsense. Nonsense. Uh, but also it was a chance for us all to remember, why do we have the president that we do? And how is the country actually doing under this president? And I, I wish people weren't just motivated, and this is a very general statement, but but were motivated by what was good instead of what frustrated them. That would be a big, that would be a game changer in this midterms, but I can't change American politics. Maybe Trump can. We'll be right back. We kneel in prayer and we proudly stand for our national anthem and our American flag. We know that faith and family, not government and bureaucracy, are the true center of American life. So true. And above all else, we know this. In America, we don't worship government. We worship God. That was a great moment last night at the, uh, at the rally as well. Although my, my all-time favorite moment, if, I, if I'm going to be completely honest with you and team, you know I am. My all-time favorite moment may have come when the crowd let it be known just how they feel about the worst cable news network out there. Please play clip eight, sir. If you want the fake news media to finally investigate. By the way, by the way. either okay i think uh you hopefully you could make out there they're yelling cnn sucks cnn sucks uh which is great which is great oh man acosta must have been in the back there dear diary so upset so upset about the mean comments from the crowd and from the president about cnn oh it's fantastic really 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 entertaining stuff um but you know the 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 part of this also that I, i couldn't get out of my mind last night was who is really going to run against this president in 2020? Uh, yes, the, the, the Democrats maybe, we're going to find out in two weeks, the Democrats maybe will take back a majority in the House, which is going to cause some problems. It's going to slow down the Trump agenda a whole lot. But I think that whatever, whatever the end result is on this November 6th, the, uh, the next cycle in, uh, in 2020, when we look at what ends up being the next chapter of the Trump presidency, I think I think the Democrats are in for a rude awakening. Because uh, remember, it's the second term sometimes when the president just decides to go all in and all out. And uh, I think that this president, especially if he has the House and the Senate back in his hands, which is a very realistic possibility for 2020, uh, will drive the liberals com- completely insane. I mean, they will they will lose their minds. But uh, you look at who's on the other side of this. Who's supposed to stop Trump in 2020? Because remember, the 2020 election basically starts on November 7th of this year. That's when our eyes, politically speaking, will shift to that. And you have, oh, Biden, for example, is one of the great, the, uh, great last-ditch hopes of the Democrats. And here's, here's a Bidenism 
from uh, from last night. Play 19. Well, I can see it's great to be with you all. You know, you know, Bill, we have a rule back in Delaware you don't have here in Miami, in Miami, in Florida. You don't have a rule here. And that is, if you keep an audience standing more than 15 minutes, you lose them. So I'm already lost, y'all. Where does he, this, this folksy, I'm from Delaware, but we're talking about kind of like I'm from, you know, somewhere in the South. Biden is such a phony as well. Such a phony. Blue collar Joe, I'm just here, rolled up sleeves, talking to America. Ugh. It's all so fake. It's all so fake. By the way, you, you couldn't really appreciate it, but he said he was in Miami. He was actually in Tampa. But, you know, Tampa, Miami is my favorite city. You know my favorite city is? Whatever city I'm in. Because I like to use that corny political stuff of, oh, it's the most beautiful city ever. Last night was the most beautiful city ever. Next week will be the, you know, it's all just, just clown show. Clown show. This is who the Democrats offer up. They, they tell us about how Trump, you know, can't govern. He's not serious. He's evil. He's a threat to the republic. It's not like they've got some, some genius former Navy SEAL who is loved on a bipartisan basis, just waiting to take over as the Democrat, you know, Democrat president. No, they've got a giant clown car of people that I wouldn't trust to run a lemonade stand. You want to trust Bernie Sanders? You'd be like, you get, you get half the lemonade, you get half the lemonade. Why is that not good enough? Everybody gets half a lemonade. You know, no, no, that's not what we want. I'm frustrated because I think that Trump has done so much. I just think that right now the the cycle that we're in and the way that politics works in this country, off election year or off your election, whatever, uh, you know, that, that, that it's just kind of taken as a fait accompli, that it's an already finished thing that we're going to lose. We're going to lose the House in the midterms. And that shouldn't be the case. All right. You look at what the Republicans have accomplished. You look at the way the country is going right now. And then you compare that to what it was like under Obama when the Democrats had control. And any person who's basing this, basing this, you know, on, you know, yeah, any person who's basing this on reality would come back and say, you know what, I think I'm going to vote. I think I'm going to vote for uh, for the Republican. <laughs> That's what should happen. But we'll see, folks. Fingers crossed. Say a prayer. The transgender rights fight. It is heating up, as I mentioned to you. Uh, the Trump administration is considering changing the definition of sex back to what the definition of sex had been for a few thousand years until the Obama administration came along and bought into this new theory that sex was not, in fact, a gender binary thing. There isn't just male and female. There are all these other uh, things that fall on that spectrum, and there need to be protections for people who are, in fact, transgender. Now, um, the New York Times has decided to double down on this, released no less in their science section, and this is the headline they picked today to share with the world. Quote, the idea that a person's sex is determined by their anatomy at birth is not true and we've known that it is not true for decades. That's a very strong statement, right? That's, that's not saying there's still questions or whatever. No, they're saying it's not true. It is false that sex is defined at birth 
by people's genitals. And the, the truth is the New York Times is a social justice rag and they have lost their minds. That's what the real truth is. Uh, the truth is that the New York Times is so devoted to this idea of trans rights as human rights that they will be disingenuous and dishonest and promote something that flies in the face of, of, of science and to do it in such a way that they're not even being honest about what they're saying. It used to be that they would separate out gender from sex. They said, well, gender is a construct. Sex is what you are physically. That was as of, you know, last year. Now it's, oh no, sex and gender are both on a spectrum. They are both constructs. Neither of them are definable and neither of them are provable, which we all know to be completely and utterly insane. I mean, the New York Times has lost its mind here. They, they write this pretty lengthy piece and they keep citing, you know, experts. But the problem is, if you look a little more closely at it, you figure out that there's only one expert noted in the entire piece. Dr. Joshua Safer, executive director of the Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery at Mount Sinai Health System in New York. He is also the president of the United States Professional Association of Transgender Health. This guy is an MD activist, okay? This guy has a huge and vested interest in promoting the notion that there is no such thing as male and female at birth, even though we all know that there is. So the way that they get around this is they bring up what I mentioned to you yesterday, intersex. Now, intersex means that people have usually two sets of different genitalia, uh, but one of them is much less formed, I know, this is science, folks, I know it's a little intense, than the other, and so in the past, they made a decision based upon which seemed like it was, in fact, the one that was more fully formed, and that was what the child was, or the baby was treated as, male or female, based on that. Now, here's the issue. While there are rare, and by the way, this is a very rare thing, genetic abnormalities, that's not what transgenderism is all about. Transgenderism is a psychological state. So to point to rare genetic abnormalities and say, see, sex is not male or female, is to say, okay, there are these very rare genetic occurrences where there is not a, as, as clear-cut a male-female divide. So that means now that somebody who decides when they're 20 that they're actually a woman is a woman. Sorry, not going to fly. Not true, not reasonable, and not ethical to try and promote the argument in this way. In fact, the argument becomes self-refuting. Because if intersex, meaning having both sets of sex organs, is what transgenderism is based on, that means anyone who is not intersex is by definition not truly transgender. So bring it, New York Times science page. This, this article was preposterous. But they're trying really hard now to say the science is on their side. And guess what, folks? It is not. It is not even close and they're going to get more desperate and more angry as people like me point that out. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. All 
right, team, roll call time. It's that favorite time, that time when the call of the roll happens. Okay, Buck, wake up. Eric writes, the audio issue is fixed. Monday's podcast sounds perfect. Also, one way to prevent round two of the separating families and concentration ship cries from the left would be to take all the immigrants in an orderly fashion, drive them right to a huge cargo plane that should fly right back to Honduras. Shields high. Uh, well, Eric, there's not a cargo plane big enough for 7,000 people that I that I know of. Um, and you'd have to round those people up and put them in that plane. And uh, Honduras would have to agree to let that plane land. But I, I understand what you're going for. I just think the logistics are a little tougher than you may have first thought. Matthew writes, Buck, if I had your political credentials, one thing I'd like to do is interview notable never-Trump conservatives like Max Boot and Bill Crystal, and ask them if they still believe in conservative principles, and, if so, what they would have Trump do differently. What do you think? Are they simply mad they aren't conservatism standard bearers anymore, or are there major portions of Trump's policy they would change? Uh, well, Matthew, I, I have interviewed David Frum, who was a somewhat prickly fellow in the interview, which I guess is unsurprising. I have not interviewed Boot or Crystal, although I know Crystal from doing CNN with him. And I kind of know Boot from when I was an intern at the Council on Foreign Relations. And he was a rather charmless academic in residence there. So as to uh, what they believe, they think that Trump is personally unacceptable. So they'll immediately go to the, the question of Trump's personal morality and what Trump has done. Uh, with regard to undermining our institutions. Neither of those are areas where you can have a worthwhile debate or discussion, but that is where they would want to immediately take the discussion. Uh, so essentially, Trump is so icky that nothing else matters. That is, that's the line that you get from the uh, former GOP elitist, never Trumpers. All right, now roll call goes to Stephen, who writes... No women, guy using gang sign, keep them out. Uh, well, let me just say, Stephen, that that photo that I, I, you're, you're showing me here about the caravan is not indicative of all 7,000 people. That said, there are a lot of guys. I spoke to a, a journalist contact today who's down there with the caravan, and he said, yes, there are a lot of, a lot of guys, uh, young men, military-aged males, we would have said back when I was in the CIA, it is not just a procession of women and children. So I think that if we're going to have this conversation, we should at least be able to have it honestly and talk about what this caravan really represents. Uh, KC writes, hey, Buck, I'm a relatively new listener, about three months. Well, KC, welcome to Team Buck, man. Great to have you. Spread the word. I have a question, topic, show idea that I simply cannot find an answer to. Here is my question. What is the financial reward of being a Democrat? I can't understand why so many rich Democrats support the Democratic Party. I'm at a total loss to understand or find an answer to this conundrum. Looking forward to the answer uh, uh, slash show. Well, I can't promise you a whole show on this, Casey. I can give you an answer now. The financial reward of being a Democrat is bifurcated. Uh, on the one hand, being a Democrat means that you buy into a victimology and an identity politics 
that if you are dependent on the state's largesse, essentially if you receive benefits from the state, welfare and other things, then you in fact are somebody that is told that this is owed to you because of oppression, because of white privilege, even if you're white, but it doesn't matter, right? Just anybody that gets this stuff, uh, the system is rigged, uh, the rich get richer, there's white privilege, there's the patriarchy, there's oppression, all that stuff. And so you are entitled to whatever the state is giving you. In fact, you are owed it. You are owed what the state gives you. In fact, you're owed more than what the state gives you. The state is essentially coming up short from what they should be giving you. And that's at that end of it. And then the other wing of being a Democrat is that if you are a very wealthy Democrat, because of your virtue signaling, because of your professed love of the poor and the oppressed and policies that are meant to assist them, you, in essence, have paid a penance for your guilt, the guilt that you feel from being so wealthy, right? The the sins that you committed to acquire all that wealth in our rapacious capitalist system, those sins are forgiven if you are a Democrat, statist, leftist, because you care so much. You're not one of the bad rich people. You're one of the good ones who's trying to solve the problems. And oh, by the way, there's also that matter of both Democrats and Republicans in positions of wealth and influence like to use that influence to benefit themselves in the overall economy and do things that assist them in trying to avoid taxes that help their businesses. So wealthy and powerful people use those things to their advantage on both sides. It's just that Democrats pretend that they don't do that at all. And they also pretend to have a problem ideologically with the very system that allowed them to acquire that wealth. They're uncomfortable with capitalism, They you see, but they're definitely going to benefit from all of its advantages. So that's how Democrats benefit in general uh, from the system that we have and from being Democrats, economically speaking. Aries writes, here we go. Oh, wow, this is Aries. This is quite a post. I'm a, as it concerns the people who oppose vaccines, uh, I'm not a doctor, but I know a few. Uh, and from what they said, when having to repeat questions from some of my crazy acquaintances, vaccines aren't a problem. Uh, okay, Aries, thank you for uh, weighing in there. Yes, I've, I have yet to meet or hear of or hear from an MD that thinks that vaccines have a risk that should be considered intolerable for people. That Look, if people are entitled to do what they, what they want when it comes to their safety, their health, and their family's health. I'm, I'm just asking, instead of people getting mad at me, I don't want anyone sending me any more angry emails about this because I've gotten a lot. Just send me where I can find an MD who thinks that vaccines are unsafe. That's all I ask. When we have that, then I'm willing to sit down again and say, okay, hold on a second. Let, let's dig into this a bit. Um, I have never come across it, and I have asked, and I have tried. Uh, Jen writes, hey, Buck, there are two different comments. The one from yesterday was in reference to the people verbally accosting Republicans. Wouldn't it be considered assault? Well, Jen, assault is a crime that is defined by different state and local jurisdictions. And yes, assault does not necessarily have to include physical contact. It can just be, uh, it, it can be the moment leading up to it. 
And it doesn't have to be, well, you don't have to be wounded, I should say, or, or physically hurt for an assault to occur, right? If someone shoves your shoulder, you haven't suffered any terrible pain or damage, but that's still an assault. Um, I, I'd have to look at the specifics of how it's defined in different places. In New York, I know there's assault and battery. And the battery is you getting beat up, basically, and getting hurt. Uh, but I'm, I am not a lawyer, and I cannot play one on radio. Uh, Don writes, Buck, I think there's a side of his Khashoggi mess that is yet to be explored. I love our president almost as much as I love your show. <laughs> Good man, Don. But I think he has brought much of the criticism on himself by either pride or inexperience. Previous swamp rat presidents who wanted to avoid confrontations with important allies, such as the Saudis, would have ran straight to the UN and demanded global community action. A committee would be formed, followed by much debate, and in the end, strong language with no real action to follow. The president could gloat that he did everything that he could and involved the global community in this horrendous tragedy. While protecting our standing with Saudi Arabia... Because President Trump has been so critical of the UN, he's probably too proud to drop in this in their lap, where it should rightfully be. What do you think? Uh, I think there are no easy answers here. I think that no matter what Trump does, his Democrat opposition is going to say that he's being weak, that he's coddling dictators. They don't care. It doesn't matter. Trump could say maybe we should invade Saudi Arabia, and they'd say, not strong enough. They'd be very upset with him still. So it does not matter. Uh, as to what I think we should do, I think we should have a very strong statement publicly about how this is unacceptable and we will not be uh, associated with regimes that do this kind of thing going forward. I think that behind closed doors, we tell the Saudis, what the heck are you doing? Are you out of your minds? This isn't 1970. The world doesn't tremble at your threat of turning off the gas station for a few weeks, okay? So shape up or ship out, basically. That's that's how I would handle it. I mean, I, I wouldn't imperil our entire uh, Mideast strategic architecture over this one guy. And I certainly wouldn't put any Americans in any kind of jeopardy or harm's way over this. So that's that's what I would do. Wayne writes, Hey, it's Wayne in upstate New York. Shields high, my good friend. Radio Tech Note. I most often catch you on the podcast via iHeart, and on the podcast there is a, a volume imbalance between the segment openings and Buck when our hero's narrative comes on. But, but, but when you were in the hut in the uh, Las Vegas edition... The crew there were different, had the balance under much better control. Big kudos to all the iHeart Tech crew, but for that week, they really did it right. Uh, guys, I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. John, you know, Mike, tell me what the situation is. I'm getting a lot of people saying that we're having audio issues on the podcast, but when I listen back to the podcast, it's fine. So I don't know. I don't know what we can do exactly about this, but I want you all to have the best podcast listening experience ever. Uh, I also want you all to know that the podcast is getting up early. Some parts of the show uh, we are able to put out earlier. So just if you are a podcast listener, all of you who listen to the show on podcast, it should be up every night now by about 7 o'clock Eastern. So it should be up several hours earlier than it had in the past. And we're going to start trying to get out the whole podcast by 6 Eastern, which means that for those of you who have a commute home, You'll be able to listen to the whole thing on your way home so you don't have to try to catch the podcast either late at night or the next day. That is the plan. Until next time, team, Shields High. 
The revolution is underway, my friends. Even the New York Times has gotten a little sniff of what's to come. Wrote a piece earlier this week, Republicans find a Facebook workaround their own apps. And then they take you through how there are, in fact, some apps now that allow communication among conservatives without all these social media giants telling you what you can say and where you can say it and all the rest of it. Oh, that's right. Something like Snippy.com, folks. We are creating free and open ecosystems, and Snippy.com is first in class. This is a place where there is no conversational health nonsense, no shadow banning, no left-wing bias, no agenda. It's an app where conservatives, where anyone can share their thoughts. Snippy.com, free to join, free to post. S-N-I-P-P-Y. Again, check it out, team. Get the conversation started at Snippy.com.